This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. We are uh, in 1 Samuel for our sermon series. Uh, and today, I was, I was wondering if you guys had ever seen any of those videos on, on YouTube where they, like, it's a hydraulic press, and they're just crushing different things of various strengths. And it's, like, strangely satisfying, uh, because it seems like an unstoppable force and an immovable object are meeting. And maybe you've heard of kind of those, that ancient paradox of an unstoppable force and an immovable object. Uh, one place where it stands out most clearly in my mind is... Uh, the 2008 The Dark Knight movie, which is a Batman movie, if you haven't seen it. And Batman's uh, villain, the Joker, uh, Batman has an opportunity to kill the Joker, but kind of saves him at the last second. And here's what the Joker says, kind of mocking him. This is what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. You are truly incorruptible, aren't you? You won't kill me out of some misplaced sense of self-righteousness, and I won't kill you because you're just too much fun. I think you and I are destined to do this forever. And I thought this highlighted something interesting about our own experience of unstoppable force, uh, meeting an immovable object, and kind of this never-ending cycle of this happening. Because the story of the Bible is that God created everything good, but Adam and Eve did what was right in their own eyes. They took the fruit that God commanded them not to, and in that moment, there was seemingly an unstoppable force of sin um, released from inside of them into the world. And that would time and time again crash into an immovable one, the judgment of God himself. So this is the, the story of the Bible. Let me just run through a few more. Throughout the biblical story, humanity gathers together and believes itself to be an unstoppable force. And they ram into God's judgment over and over and over again. Think of the flood. They did such wickedness, thinking that no judgment would ever come, and God flooded the entire earth. Afterwards, they gathered at the Tower of Babel, thinking that they could build a tower up to heaven and storm heaven's gates. And God had to stoop down to see what they were doing and then confuse their language. Pharaoh, believing himself to be a god, will try to stand up against God himself, and God will send plagues in the death of his firstborn. The Hebrews in the desert will build for themselves a golden calf because they can't see God, and God will send a plague. I hope you're getting the picture. The story of humanity is that it believes itself to be an unstoppable force, but the biblical story is that we are very much stoppable and time and time again run into the immovable one, usually by way of his judgment. Of course, this is not just the story of the Bible and humanity, but this is our own personal experience as well. Why can't we just be better? Why can't we just change those things about ourselves that we don't like, we and others? Why is it that we still have the same sins that keep rearing their heads? Why do we keep self-destructing in the same way over and over and over again? Are we destined to do this forever? Are we destined to do this forever? Is there any end to this cycle? For the next few weeks, and the rest of 1 Samuel, really, we're going to see King Saul, by way of his sin, hit rock bottom over and over and over again. And from him today, from our passage, uh, we're going to learn a couple things. One, uh, what the result of our sin looks like, what rock bottom looks like. And two, we're going to investigate the question of whether we're destined to do this forever. 
whether there is actually a stop to this cycle. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, which comes from 1 Samuel chapter 19, starting in verse 18. 1 Samuel 19, starting in verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, and he told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah, and he came to the great well that is in Seku, and he said, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. All right. Now at the forefront, I just want to acknowledge that this story is a little weird, right? (laughs) If you're following along, you're like, what is going on? Um, You've got David fleeing Saul because Saul is trying to murder him. The story we just left off on uh, was... Uh, that Saul was trying to utilize his daughter, Michal or Michael, whoever's pronunciation you would like to go with, um, was uh, he was trying to use his daughter uh, to get at David to kill him. And, and his daughter uh, lets David down uh, out, out of a window so that he can escape, and he's fleeing. And so he goes to Samuel, this great prophet, this kingmaker uh, that the book is named after, and we've seen him show up again and again. And he says, Samuel, what do I do, essentially? Uh, and Samuel and them escape. And it seems that they're in this, um, uh, Samuel leads kind of this band of prophets. And it's here where I've got to acknowledge that we don't have a lot of information about what these prophets are doing. Uh, we're, we're not exactly sure why they're doing what they're doing. But it is clear to us that the implication for Saul is that he will be brought into direct confrontation of his own sin. He will be brought to rock bottom stripping himself of his clothes and of his dignity and laying down before the Spirit of the Lord. What we learn from Saul as he approaches his rock bottom uh, is that, that we get to learn the damage that our own sin can do. And there's two things that we're going to learn, particularly from this story. There's more damage that our sin can do, but this, this story highlights uh, uh, two kind of aspects our alienation from ourselves, and also our alienation from others. So that's how we're going to look um, at what the result of our sin is. Now, have you ever known anybody that's had a self-destructive behavior who just like careens into the same problems again and again and again? Uh, I knew someone who had type 2 diabetes but would constantly eat tons of sugar drink full sugar soda, so much so that there was a few times leaving my house uh, that he would tell me that he'd have to stop on the side of the highway to nap off the effects of his body for risk of crashing his car. It was self-destructive behavior that was hard to be around and hard to argue against because he was dead set in his ways. 
This is kind of like Saul. You guys are kind of getting that feedback from the mic, right? I'm sorry about that. This is kind of like Saul. Already knowing that God said his house won't rule forever, Saul can't make peace with the reality that God had given him. And so he turns to destructive behaviors, alienating him from himself through his sin. Now, there's an interesting thing. I don't know if you remember this about Saul, but as you read through this story, it says that the Lord sends an evil spirit upon Saul. And and some commentators seem to believe that this evil spirit is kind of a depressive state that Saul is in. And so Saul kind of goes through these bouts of depression, and he comes out just angry and murderous, right? And in Christianity, there is an interesting but profoundly mysterious connection between disease and sin. Now, for this like, next paragraph or so, I'm going to be quoting from uh, a much uh, smarter theologian. His name is Cornelius Plantinga, clearly a theologian. I mean, just got the name for it. Um, but this is how he kind of describes the differences in the connection between our sin and disease. Sometimes sin causes disease. For instance, when illicit sex spreads syphilis or battery causes brain damage. But sometimes disease furnishes an occasion for or inclines a person towards sin, as in cases of an invalid's malice towards the healthy. There can be a distinction between the sin and the disease, though, and I wonder if you guys remember this story. Um, uh, Jesus, the Pharisees bring to Jesus uh, this blind man, and they say, hey, this man was born blind. Who sinned, his parents or him, that he would experience such a fate? And Jesus said, neither. He was born blind for the glory of God. But we can distinguish between the sin and the disease, as Jesus does there. And maybe it would be best to say it this way. Sin makes us guilty, while disease makes us miserable. We need grace for our sin, but mercy and healing for our diseases. It seems that there's a connection between Saul's sin and Saul's depressive attitudes. Saul's sin made him miserable, but his misery made him self-destructive. Now, now hear me carefully. Uh, the Bible does not say that all depressive states are a result of our own sin, even if we can recognize that the misery of our depressive states makes us more inclined to aggravate it with sin. Sin and misery have a self-destructive cycle for us as individuals. Saul's sin and misery drives him to self-destruction at the expense of more sin and misery. The murder of David won't cure what ails him. But Saul is a seemingly unstoppable force about to crash into rock bottom. You see, David flees from Saul's, and we'll talk about the messengers in a second. But eventually, Saul realizes that in order uh, to, to, you know, uh, for something to be done right, you got to do it yourself. So he's going to have to get his hands dirty. Uh, So Saul sets off on the trail to go find David and Samuel. But Saul's stoppableness becomes immediately apparent for all to see. Before he even arrives at the place where they are, no words have exchanged. He is prophesying in the Spirit. He strips off at least his royal robes, if not all of his clothes. Um, That word translated naked there uh, can also just mean stripped to an inappropriate amount of clothing for their culture, maybe especially for a king. Um, But maybe it was... uh, True that he was, in fact, naked. Either way, he is vulnerable and unable to control himself and his own dignity before those that he wished to harm. Make no mistake, he wanted to put David to death. But it goes even further than this. 
Um, it says that he lay naked all that day and all that night in verse 24. Uh, and then it follows up with, thus it is said, as Saul also among the prophets. I think that word lay down effectively communicates what literally happened. Um, but it's also more of like being falling down, crashing upon his face is more often how that verb is used. He crashed into the immovable one. Saul came prophesying and undignified himself by removing his outer clothes or all of his clothes and armor, made himself vulnerable to fall down before the spirit of the Lord. Saul's rock bottom was an estrangement from himself. Total loss of self-control and whatever dignity he thought he had left. His sin was driving him uh, not only to this estrangement from himself, but others could see that he was being estranged from himself. What that phrase in there, thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets, is actually really fascinating. Uh, if you've been uh, reading through 1 Samuel with us, you might remember that um, in chapter 10, uh, this phrase is used again. So when Saul was getting anointed king in chapter 10, he was a little bit afraid, and he was like, God, I don't, I don't know if I'm really called to do this. And God said, here's the things that will confirm for you uh, that I want you to be king. And one of those things was that he was going to be prophesying ecstatically. And it seems that when the people saw it, right? Remember, the people were so desperate for a king. And here's this guy, a head taller than everyone else, formidable in his fighting. And yet he's also prophesying. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one who can finally bring dignity to our nation who can redeem us. But now nine chapters later, after nine chapters of petty anger and self-destructive behaviors, the people are now using it sarcastically. It's no longer full of hope, but sadness, despair, and anger. The unstoppable force was broken upon the immovable one. Some of us can remember specific times where, like Saul, we crashed into the judgment of the immovable one. Some of us have a number of these stories, actually. Uh, God in his graciousness uh, confronted us after many of these crashes. Sometimes we call it rock bottom. Sometimes we call it our wake-up call. For that diabetic, I knew earlier his wake-up call came with a collapse in his apartment, seemingly permanent damage of his eyesight and kidney failure. Some of our wake-up calls are more drastic and some of them less. But rock bottom is always self-destructive because... When you meet rock bottom, you're really meeting the judgment of God. Rock bottom is where the last vestiges of our self-made pride and arrogance are stripped off, and we come crashing into the immovable one in his judgment, and we find that we are very much a stoppable force. Does hitting rock bottom cause you to see yourself for who you really are, or does Rock bottom tend to harden your heart even further. Because I can tell you for Saul in the coming chapters, it only hardened him further. He couldn't see himself in the self-destructive behaviors. He needed to be battle-hardened for the next fight where he might win. Are you self-destructively crashing into rock bottom time and time again? I don't know your life I don't know your struggles, your sins, your miseries, your diseases, your stories, or your traumas. I don't know if you're on a mountaintop today or if you're in rock bottom. But I do know that crashing into rock bottom of God's judgment, you are not alone. Not just Saul, but everyone in this room has self-destructively made fools of themselves in their own sin and because of their own misery. 
And if you believe church is a place where people gather together to pat themselves on the back for how they've never hit rock bottom, you are very, very wrong. Church is where we who have hit rock bottom come to bow ourselves again with no um, pride or arrogance. It's all stripped away, bowing yet again before the spirit of the living God and asking to see ourselves clearly, asking for deliverance. We come here because we've been softened by the crash. We want to see Jesus. We lose our self-made dignity and we beg for the dignity from another. We ought to be people that are intimately aware of the self-destruction that our sin wreaks. But rock bottom is not just self-destructive. Our rock bottom also destroys others. Our sin just also destroys others. You see, Saul sent messengers to do his will and whether they went willingly or under compulsion and military duty uh, to their king, they were brought to humiliation as well. They also had to bow down before the spirit of the living God. And you can imagine that uh, after this incident, uh, the sarcasm that would spread among the ranks of Saul's increasingly disloyal army. <laughs> and as he gave commands, you could hear the murmur, is Saul really among the prophets? But it's not just subordinates who are harmed in this story. If we were to zoom out just a little bit more from our story today, um, and remember what just happened in this story. Saul's son and daughter, Jonathan and Michal, had to challenge their father's own self-destructive ways. It can be really frustrating to work with, live with, or be around self-destructive people. In fact, it can be traumatizing. It can be violent. Especially if you challenge their destructive ways, often what happens is that the destruction is aimed at you. Saul was this person, throwing spears at his son's best friend, trying to manipulate his daughter's love to kill David. And again, some of us can readily identify how we have used and consumed others in our own striving after what we desired most, and we have deeply harmed others. But some of us choose to believe that our sins are small, and they don't really affect other people. I don't know if you ever heard this. People have been like, man, this is just between me and God. Like, I know God kind of says it's wrong, but like, I'm not hurting anybody, right? It's as if our participation in what were once called the seven deadly sins, pride, envy, anger, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust, are only between God and you. But your sin always affects others. It's how God made us. For Saul, it affected his subordinates, but it also affected his children. And I think that's a great way for us to find this application point. Joaquin sees my pride, envy, anger, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. In the beautiful way that God has made children, even if I'm able to subtly mask it from my own wife, Joaquin is designed to learn and imitate his father, and he will do it. How many of you have had that moment where you repeat something that you promised you would never repeat from your childhood that you repeated towards your children? You want me to give you something to cry about? I wonder if that's how we think God treats us. I wonder if you can think of other ways that you've seen how your self-destructive desire has driven you to rock bottom and it's affected not just yourself but others. Others in your workplace, 
in your marriages, in your friendships, in your schools, where our pride, envy, anger, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust work their way not only for the destruction of your own soul, but the destruction and consumption of others around you for your own ends. Crashing into God's judgment reveals that our sin is not only self-destructive, but it also destroys others. Now, if you've truly considered maybe the weight of what our sin causes among ourselves and others, and you considered the reality of crashing into God's judgment and what that might look like, you might be wondering, even though I'm a Christian, I still do this quite often. (laughs) I crash into God's judgment. I still choose sin over him. I still make the same mistakes over and over and over again. Will it ever be any different? Paul in the New Testament will describe his sin something like this. I do not do what I want, but the very thing I don't want is what I keep on doing. I keep hitting rock bottom again and again. Wretched man that I am, says Paul, who will deliver me? Saul's kingdom, back in 1 Samuel, was going to be torn away because he was not a man after God's own heart. It was going to be given to David, who was a man after God's own heart. Saul was not working for God's kingdom anymore. He was only working for his own, time and time again, wreaking untold damage on himself and others. Jesus tells a parable about others who would have a kingdom torn away from them. You know, if you remember Esperanza reading from our New Testament passage in Matthew 21, there's a lot of similarities between that passage and our own. There's a master who is sending servants to execute his will that eventually has to go himself. If you remember in that passage, there's this master, owner of the land, invests all this money to develop it, uh, and then lets tenants run it, right, and goes off into a far-off place. But when the time comes to harvest the fruit, he sends servants to go collect from the tenants. But the tenants haven't produced any fruit while the master was away. And so the tenants killed and beat the servants. So the owner sent two more groups of servants. And I hope you see the similarities that are coming right now. But I hope you'll find also that Saul's disposition of sending servants in Jesus' parable the master in Jesus' parable, their dispositions are quite different. Because the master in Jesus' parable ponders and says, surely they'll respect my son. It seems that God, who's supposed to be the vineyard owner in Jesus' parable, was so willing to be long-suffering, was so willing that these tenants would come to repentance, that he would not only send three groups of servants, but he would send his own son, pleading with them to see reason. You are not the vineyard owners. You are tenants. Yield the fruit you were commanded to produce. But the tenants, in their self-destructive sin, thinking that, that they could gain the inheritance by killing the son, would take the son, throw him out of the vineyard, and kill him. And it's a foolish thing, right? To think that, like, the father is going to give you an inheritance when you just murdered his son. Like, this, it's not how inheritances work. But in our sin, we do foolish things. We foolishly believe that we can get our own way, that we can claw our own selves back from God, that we can do what is right in our own eyes, and that we know better than God. It's foolish. Jesus pauses at this point in his parable, and he says, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they respond, 
He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus then quotes a psalm, and then he says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And it sounds very much like what God had to say to Saul when he said, I'm taking this kingdom away from you, and I'm giving it to a man who is after my own heart producing fruits. Judgment is coming, Saul. When the judgment day rolls back, we will find that we are miserable wretches. At rock bottom, we will fall on our faces before the just and holy God who comes to exact vengeance upon us, his wicked servants, who have not only failed to produce the fruits of the kingdom, but who thought to kill the anointed one of God himself, God's own son. O wretched men and women that we are, is there anyone to deliver us? We often hear God's judgment, especially in the Old Testament, and we hear only fire and brimstone. But I'd like for you to think about all of the mercy that God showed Saul in 1 Samuel. Mercy from his son Jonathan earlier in chapter 19. Mercy upon his servants who came to fulfill an unjust command. Mercy upon Saul himself, who probably should have just died in the presence of the Spirit of the Lord and instead lived to see another day. God was so willing that he come to his senses, so willing that he come to repentance, given another chance to see the power of God at work and yield, to stop pretending that he is an unstoppable force. But Saul doesn't want to stop pretending. And for the next few chapters, as I mentioned, we're going to see him in his own sinfulness, slam into the rock bottom of God's judgment again and again, further destroying himself and others. But our God is long-suffering, willing that all should come to repentance. But it will not go on forever. The mercy might be even more clear in Jesus' parable of the vineyard, because of course we talk about the fire and brimstone judgment that's coming. He says, yes, the master will come and put those miserable wretches to death, But even in there, in that psalm that Jesus quotes, there's another plea to reason to the people that Jesus is speaking to, to repent and see what the Lord is doing. The psalm that Jesus quoted in his parable said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Jesus was telling this parable uh, with Pharisees listening in who were hard-heartedly crashing into God's judgment They were the tenants that the vineyard was let out to, supposed to produce fruits, uh, and they uh, were not producing them. And Jesus is telling them that the kingdom was going to be ripped away from them and given to someone who did produce fruit. But make no mistake, the Pharisees and the listeners, everybody listening to Jesus' parable would be guilty of his blood. All of us are the tenants of the vineyard. All of us have blood-stained hands. The question is whether or not we have hit rock bottom in God's judgment and been hardened to continue doing that which we think is best, or whether we've hit rock bottom and see God's um, uh, for judgment in our lives and say, I need someone to deliver me. 
I do not have what it takes. No amount of performance, no amount of my own right plans, no amount of anything that I can do of perfectionism lived in light of religious law is going to merit me uh, satisfaction to this master who is coming to avenge his son's blood, and his blood is on my hands. To those who have hit rock bottom, the stone that they crashed into when they hit those rocks at the bottom was the stone that they had rejected and killed themselves, right? And they threw down into the pit, and they realized that they're getting thrown down too. And they crash upon it, and then they realize that this stone that had been rejected was the cornerstone of something new. The cornerstone of deliverance. The cornerstone of salvation of security. Saul's rock bottom, humility before the spirit of the living God, was a final plea to see reason and turn towards God's anointed. If you're a tenant of the vineyard who is now in rock bottom looking at the blood stained hands, knowing that your sin played a part in the death of the Son of God, then you can also look upon the resurrected Son of God. The same son that you were responsible for killing, that stone that was rejected, and cast yourself upon him. The embodiment of mercy and love, who although you were stripped naked of any self-made dignity and pride, gave you his clothes to wear, who although had no crowns, were given crowns by him, who when they finish the race will be, t- be told, well done, my good and faithful servant not because you had what it took to wash the blood off your hands, but because the one you killed, that blood cleansed you. It's an invitation to turn towards him for forgiveness. Jesus took upon himself the evil of this world, our sin and our self and other destructiveness. He became sin who knew no sin. He would not fight against the judgment of the immovable one, but would submit to the judgment. And in that perfect obedience um, of unjust reception, he would buy with his blood our redemption, our deliverance, our reconciliation. He died the death we should have died so that we can live the life that he should have lived. There will come a day where all of us miserable wretches will be confronted with the final rock bottom, where the judgment of the Lord will come in its fullness. And there are two options for us that day. We'll all be in the same position, um, face down before the Spirit of the Lord uh, with blood on our hands. We can continue insisting in that moment that we are the vineyard owners, that we had a right to do what we wanted with our lives, that we had a right to kill the son and the servants because it was ours, and it was ours for the taking, and to demand an inheritance. Or you can cast yourself upon that cornerstone of deliverance, Christ Jesus, who went to death for you and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whoever comes to me shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. Whenever it is that our sin brings us to rock bottom, I hope that it is a wake-up call to cast ourselves upon the only one who can deliver us.